Hello, and welcome to whatever podcast I'm recording. Live Like the World is Dying. Hello, welcome <laughs> to Live Like the World is Dying. I'm your host, Margaret Kilsway. Uh, one of your, well, I'm your only host today. There's other hosts. I found out, I probably said this last time, I found out that one of the other hosts sometimes people think is me. Maybe people think I'm them. But I'm Margaret, and Inman is Inman, and we're different people. But today, we're going to be talking about kind of talking about preparedness. And we're going to be talking about someone uh, from New Zealand who currently lives in Australia, who does a lot of research into the preparedness subculture and also into disasters. And I don't know, I'm, I'm really excited for y'all to hear this conversation. But first, I'm really excited for y'all to hear this jingle for another show on Channel Zero Network, the podcast network for anarchist podcasts. Their tagline is probably less repetitive than that. Here's the jingle. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. And we're back. Okay, so if you could introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns, and then um, I, the other introduction stuff that you wanted to do. Hi, everyone. My name's Tom. My pronouns are he, him. I would like to acknowledge that uh, I'm putting this podcast on the traditional grounds of the Yagara and Turbul people here in Mianjin, Brisbane, and acknowledge that their elders and descendants have been thriving on this land for tens of thousands of years and surviving for the last couple of centuries under colonialism. Um, if anyone's still here thriving in a couple of centuries, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Um, I'm, I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'd just like to also quickly say um, kia ora koutou, kia ora koutou, kia ora koutou katoa. Um, noa whanganui atara ahau, um, ko Nati Pakia toku iwi and ko Tom toku ingoa. So, yeah, um, I'm from Wellington. I'm, I'm Pakia, settler colonist, and, yeah, my name is Tom. And thank you so much, Margaret. I'm a huge fan of your show and your work, and it's it's really exciting for me to um, be having this chat with you. Oh well, thanks. I'm really excited to talk to you about all this stuff. We've we were talking a little bit before we press record about some of what we're going to be talking about. And I'm really excited about it. Do you want to introduce the work that you do that kind of leads you into knowing a fair amount about preparedness and stuff? Yes, of course. Thank you. So I'm a nonfiction writer. I I write. Uh, books. I, I wrote, uh, my first book was actually a comedy travel book, a memoir called Moron to Moron, Two Men, Two Bicycles, One Mongolian Misadventure, um, cycling from a small town called Moron to a small town also called Moron. Um, I then, I guess, overcorrected from being a silly travel person and um, went went back to university and did a PhD in, in climate change and disaster. And there, there was a really terrible mine fire in 
the Latrobe Valley, which is a couple of hours out of Melbourne in, in southeastern Australia. Um, and so I wrote a, a couple of books about that mine fire. Um, the first one was called The Coal Face. The second one was called Hazelwood. The name of the mine was, was Hazelwood. Um, so I guess now I can call myself a disaster journalist um, with, with that, um, that written. And then when I was living in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, over, over COVID, I, I edited a, a collection of essays called Living with the Climate Crisis, Voices from Aotearoa. And that was sort of a collection of um, personal essays from academics in the climate space, but also activists and quite a lot of Māori Pacifica voices as well. Um, and I was, I was quite happy. There, were a couple, there was one kid who was still in high school and um, uh, a, a young woman who was in first year uni. So I was, I was quite excited to have actual teenagers in the book. Oh, that's cool. So I guess I'm... I like writing about the climate crisis and trying to find, I guess, new ways into a subject which I think uh, obsesses me, obsesses so many of us these days, but can can be so overwhelming and complicated and and also just sort of a bit dry and boring. So I'm not a scientist. I'm not very interested in politics and policy at that kind of, um, you know, pointy-headed um politician level but trying to find (laughs) trying to find like excited and fucked up stories and you know things that people um can really connect with and engage with is um what's exciting to me and i guess what what brought me to to prepper culture and and survivalist culture okay so what's funny to me about this i agree with you i think most writing about climate change is like really dry there's some sort of pun in there about the fires that are coming in here but but it's kind of wild to me that it's like a dry subject when it's like we're we're literally mm. discussing like probably not the end of multicellular life on earth but like maybe probably not mm. but like we're talking about something that is like impacts every person who is alive in very dramatic ways and drama mm-hmm. is literally the essence of um a story um the, mm-hmm. you know and so like mm. how is it why is climate change boring to talk about? And what are the, some of the things that you do to mm. come up with ways to discuss it in ways that are not, that are engaging to audiences? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I guess we could say that climate change has got a lot more exciting in the last 10 or 15 years as <laughs> the disasters yeah. have got so much exponentially worse. Um, so, so, yeah, it's not... It isn't boring when when your kitchen is full of smoke for six months, or um, yeah. you know when your house is getting washed into the beach, which is sort of happening more and more. Um, but I guess I don't know. I mean, look, I I was I was studying at uni. Like, if I go back, say twenty years, I was doing like <sighs> English lit, <laughs> but I was living in a in a hippie share house full of. Um, full of like rat bag girls who were studying environmental science and, and they mm-hmm. were, they had the fear back then. And I still was like, Oh, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, he's cool. Um, and they were like, <laughs> we, we must, you know, never have another plastic bag in the house ever again. You know, like we're teetering on the brink. And I was like, really, this is a bit weird. You know, you guys pretty uptight. Um, and it took me, it took me a while to kind of catch up to them and to understand, um, what they were so worried about and it wasn't just climate change stuff it was species extinction and and pollution and um just overshoot just the overshoot of industrial capitalism on all its levels um but i i think with climate change right like there's just so much to it right and and there's i do think that that some of the conversations around 
CO2 concentration levels in the atmosphere, say. And like, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we were trying to stabilize it, you know, 350 parts per million or what have you, or, you know, like they were just overshot that or, you know, like the the absolutely kind of like, um, it can just seem so trifling and weird to be like, arguing about is 1.5 degrees going to keep humanity alive or are we already fucked or like is two degrees going to be okay like what once you're talking about graphs and you're sort of talking about statistical uncertainty i mean i think the right knew this right and there are operatives out of the republican party and out of the tobacco industry and you know it's that whole doubt is our product thing which is like if Mm -hmm. if uncertainty is the message even if all of the outcomes are from bad to terrible to everyone is dead somehow the message that comes through is we don't know and what what people interpret that is maybe nothing will happen then you know maybe it will go on like this forever um or it's just too complicated and the experts don't know and you know like we sort of i still feel like it gets kind of mired in that space even though in a lot of ways we have moved on from that and the and the denial um strategies have moved on to that to like well it's really really bad but there's not really anything we could do about it so let's just kind of hunker down and um foment um you know uh racism <laughs> to to shore up a sort of ethno state you know it's the sort of it's the new front of denialism but yeah you know, it, it, it's hard to get your teeth s- stuck into it do that again have you randomly read this book termination shock by neil stevenson so it's a fairly recent not. Neil Stevenson book. I, I, I'm honestly I not coming out of the yeah. gate recommending it. Okay. Like, but there's this part in it where it's, it's a climate change book and, and increasingly Neil Stevenson's solutions to large problems seems to be, I hope the billionaires save us. And that's okay. like, it's like the billionaires and the monarchs, like literally working together to whatever. I was pretty unimpressed with some stuff, but <laughs> One of the things that he talks about, he talks about when like all of the sudden the right wing starts talking about climate change and taking it seriously, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And it's funny because like you're talking about how like the right wing thing, right? At, at least in the United mm-hmm. States, the right wing thing is to not acknowledge climate change, you know, say everything's going to continue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But they're still laying like the preparedness culture, the the right wing preparedness culture is still kind of laying a foundation. And it like makes mm-hmm. me think that like, I try not to be conspiracy minded, but it makes me think that like... Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of the people higher up actually do believe in climate change and are just like, it is not politically useful to mm-hmm, us currently mm-hmm. to claim that climate change is real. Mm-hmm. But whenever that switch comes, that's going to be a scary uh-huh. moment. Yeah, I think you could be right. Yeah, there could be a lot of whiplash, right? In terms of like, as as uh, Fox and Breitbart and all those channels, if they do sort of turn on a dime. Yeah, yeah there'll be a lot of confused people. But um, yeah, it, it also just feels like, I don't know. It's such, it's so, it's also dank and festy online, right? In terms of the stuff people are reading and, and people's ability to change their minds or to change their minds radically while thinking they haven't changed their minds at all. Like we're, we're very flexible. We're very good humans with, with, withholding contradictory ideas and, and um, managing yeah. that dissonance. Um, yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess when I started writing my, my, my um, Hazelwood book, I, one of the reasons I was really drawn to that as a subject is that it was a way for me to write about climate change and think through climate change stuff with a really clear 
story and cast of characters and kind of um, engaging action, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there are aspects of the book, which are like a disaster movie, I guess. Cause it was, I mean, it was, I'll tell you briefly cause it was crazy, you know, like it was, a, yeah. Tell me what, was a, yeah. Tell me what happened. So, so, so the, the Hazelwood mine is um, a huge open cast mine. So it's not underground mine shafts. It's like they, you know, they just dig out an entire Sur- surface mining area. Yeah. Surface mining. Yeah. And so the, the mine is like, um, over a kilometer, you know, wide and a kilometer long, and, and it's hundreds of meters of, of exposed coal wall, and it's right next to a town of fifteen thousand people, um, and it's directly upwind of this town, and and of course because neoliberalism is terrible, the mine was owned by the government, the state government, and then they sold it because they they thought they needed the money. Um, and when they sold it, they relaxed all the safety regulations, um, which included that the new mine owners didn't have to cover over the, the dugout coal. So there's just like a flammable mm-hmm. wall of coal. And then there's unprecedented heat wave, there's unprecedented drought, and there's a there's a fire that starts um, directly upwind of the mine. It, it blows immediately into a pine plantation, which has been planted next to the mine, which is idiotic. Uh-huh. So the the pine plantation goes off like, you know, like a box of fireworks, showering embers um, into the, the coal face. That just lights up instantly. There's, there's no – they've pulled out the sprinkler system to sell them for scrap because the regulators <laughs> let them do it. Like it's just an absolute clusterfuck. And there's literally like cracks in the surface of the mine which go 10 metres deep. So so once the fire's in there, it's in there, right? It's sort of like – it's like um, a volcano yeah. or something. And, and then – it's poisoning all of the, the townspeople who, who are directly downwind from the mine. So not only was it a terrible event and it, it poisoned thousands of people who were quite poor and not really in a position to leave town because they didn't have money often, and it, and it killed a couple of dozen people, statistically speaking, although it's hard to point the finger at, at who exactly died from poisoning. But that story, I guess, there, there was so much kind of wrapped up in it as a kind of symbol or metaphor or synecdoche for for the terribleness of climate change. Mm-hmm. And that, that was really good as a writer to work with, right? Because it was sort of like, well, if you want a story about how coal kills, this is a story about how coal kills. And yeah. it's killing the people who dig it up and whose who's husbands, you know, work in the mine and the wives, you know, live next door. And so... You know that it, it was a really good thing for me to land land with as I guess a as an author who was sort of hoping to make even a smidgen of positive difference in the world. Um, you know, and, and coal is one of those kind of inflection points, I guess, where it's like, well, at least if the Australian government closed down some of its coal mines, which are some of the most dirty and polluting in the world, at least that'd be something. You know, and so that was kind of um, something I dedicated a, a lot of a lot of the 2010s to probably about five or six years there and once that project kind of wrapped up and I was a little bit it's a little bit unsure of what to do next I'm not I mean it's one of the reasons I admire you Margaret is that you have so much on the go and you've got so many ideas and things going along I feel <laughs> like I've had three or four good ideas in my life um and I was short a good idea um and actually one of my one of my mates, um, Sam Hoffman, who's a sort of old sort of activist media dude from way back, he started sending me messages and links to prepper Facebook groups in Australia. And he was like, you've got you to gotta check this stuff out, man. It's wild. Like, it's like left-wingers and right-wingers and, um, you know, like weird bogans and anarchists and hippies all sort of like 
saying all this crazy stuff and some of it's you know really really onto it about storing food and some of it's like really whack job conspiracy theories and yeah and so he was getting very excited about it and my instant reaction my initial reaction was like ick, gross like prepping gross like gross you know yeah. racist white men yuck like don't want yeah. anything to do with it guns gross ooh. um and so i was quite like that for a while but the links kept coming um and i <laughs> I kept clicking on them. I don't know. Um, and then at some point um, I flipped over and I was like, okay, no, this is amazing. There's something really interesting culturally going on. Sam's right as he is from time to time um, uh, in terms of it seeming like there was this sort of really interesting subcultural moment where traditional political alliances were sort of getting scrambled and reformed in the prepping space. And I was like, I couldn't tell what was happening. I, I didn't know how to pass it. Right. I, I didn't know if I was to say yeah. this is a reactionary thing or this is a beautiful community thing. It seems like it's both at once. Um, and it seems like the people in that space could kind of could go in e- either direction quite easily as well. Yeah. And I started looking at New Zealand prepper sites as well. And I'm, I can't remember actually if I think this was a New Zealand thing I found, but there was, there was this, this, person and they were like oh I'm just a you know I'm just a single mama and I'm just trying to look after my kid and I really want to buy a tent to you know bug out but I can't afford a tent does anyone have any ideas and someone was like oh tents tents are terrible and they're so expensive I reckon just you know go to go to the hardware store go to Bunnings and buy a buy a good old tarp and a glue gun you can make your own tent (laughs) and (laughs) I remember just thinking like that is such a terrible idea like I've I've been camping a lot. Like tarps are not breathable. Like there's a reason that tents are kind yeah. of expensive. It's because they have this really wonderful breathable fabric and they're light yeah. in there. And usually you know, two like, layers unless it's, unless it's crazy expensive. Yeah. That's right. And there's membranes going on and stuff. And so I was like sleeping out in a tarp and or and or trying to make your own um waterproof tent with a glue gun. I was just like, that's a terrible idea. But the pathos of that and the kind of like the idea that, you know, people who, who have very limited resources and very legitimate concerns about um, the fragility of society and how things could go south and, and what what options they have, how limited their options are, the pathos of that really hit home for me. And I, because, yeah. you know, I'm from New Zealand. I, I've been living in Australia, but, you know, I follow New Zealand stuff all the time. And I was, I was back there in 2020, The other kind of prepper stories that started coming across my radar, which I don't know if they were a big deal in, in the States, but suddenly there was this like cluster of stories and it was like Silicon Valley tech, tech billionaires have a bunker in New Zealand, you know? Like, oh yeah, totally. I was going to ask right? you about this. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And they've got a private jet on standby waiting, waiting at, you know, the airport where they pay a pilot yeah. around the clock, you know, Peter Thiel, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos, whoever, you know, definitely Peter Thiel. I'm not sure about Bezos. Um, I think James Cameron, the the film director, owns a massive property at the bottom of the, the um, North Island. I think Shania Twain has a massive estate. I don't know if she's a prepper. She's wow. just rich, right? Um, yeah. But the, the Peter Thiel thing was big. And the fact that, like, I think Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn. But, yeah, there was suddenly this this thing and it was like all the all the CEOs in Silicon Valley it's a nudge nudge wink wink to say I've got a bunker in New Zealand and um as you know as a New Zealander I'm like the instant reaction of course is like fuck those guys um and also like 
why can can Americans just buy up half of New Zealand? Like, this is terrible. And I think it's I think it has been regulated since then because I think a lot of people were like, fuck, what the fuck's going on? This is terrible. So it's become a little bit more difficult. It was it's definitely odd as a you know as a middle class New Zealander who's grown up being taken by my mother and father into the the wilderness to go hiking and camping and and so forth and mm-hmm. you know appreciating the great wilderness when you start reading american newspaper articles and new zealand newspaper articles saying that uh the super rich silicon valley tycoons who are destroying the planet are also buying up large swathes of your precious country because they expect uh, their behavior to destroy the world and they want to use New Zealand as their bolt hole. Um, it's a pretty, it's, you know, feel a little bit miffed about the whole thing. Um, yeah. As well as the, the terrible hypocrisy and cynicism of it all. And in actual fact, like since those stories have broken, I think there has been a general sense of disgruntlement in New Zealand and the, the law, the foreign property ownership laws have been tightened. So, so, it's not okay. like there are. It's not like every second tech billionaire in in the states now owns big chunks of New Zealand. That's become much harder. But nevertheless, the fact does remain that Peter Thiel has a big, you know, property on the edge of a beautiful lake in Wanaka, and you know he's trying to get resource consent planning to build you know outlandish Bond villain style underground bunker that I think actually got knocked back because it's ugly and uh-huh. terrible but you know it's, it's it is weird to sort of think oh wow the you know the people who the world is their playground those super rich they they're choosing new zealand and you know there are lots of sort of i guess uh climate sciencey reasons for that right because new zealand has lots of rainfall and will continue to do so uh hopefully um it's quite high above sea level it's very hilly and mountainous it's has a low population it's far away from other land masses um so there are all of these these ways in which new zealand functions as a bunker in itself right if you can yeah. get yourself to new zealand you're you sort of you know any bunker on top of that is sort of a cherry cherry on top kind of thing so i started becoming very interested in this topic in late 2019 right in in the pre-covid world and and it's it's so funny because at that stage i would still if i talk to people i'd be like oh i'm I'm, i've started becoming interested in preppers and they'd be like what what's a prepper and it was still something that i kind of had to explain right or i remember i was trying to apply for the odd kind of like grant application or whatever for those of you who don't know which is everyone a prepper is someone who thinks the world is going to end and so they're storing cans or whatever, you know, so you, you write up your little definition. And I remember writing up those early definitions like in January 2020. And yeah. then, you know, COVID was kind of creeping, creeping, creeping into yeah. media stories. I remember having a, um, a, a just a house party and, and this um, guy was over and he was like, should we be talking more about Wuhan? And like, you know, and it's like, oh, that's right, Wuhan. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later it was like, oh, shit, Italy's in a lot of trouble and and then it was like, oh God, there's some terrible things going on. Um, but just watching it kind of creep up, and then it was like, oh man, there's this terrible pandemic. We have to all. And I remember going. Um, so my my partner was was flying from. New, we were living in New Zealand at the time. She was flying to Sydney to actually do an audio recording for a, for a novel of hers that was coming out. And I was like, mm-hmm. you need to get. N95 face mask like I don't want you on that plane without a face mask so like I went to yeah. to the Bunnings hardware store um to so try the preppers and get face got masks. to you is what you're saying 
I was becoming a little bit of a prepper, right? And um, yeah, uh-huh. and uh-huh. and so I went to the store to get the the face masks, and the 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 clerk there was like, "I'm sorry, the preppers have come out of the hills and they bought all the face masks. Like people have been buying <laughs> face masks by the box, by the hundred. And then he he found me, you know, in the corner somewhere, the last two, you know, proper spec face masks. So yeah. I so I bought them, and I bought my um I bought my shelving units, and I cleared out the garage, and I loaded up on cans and I and I remember as I was I, I didn't really go crazy with the toilet paper but as I was loading up on cans there were definitely utes and trucks parking in the in the, the pack and save car park and they were loading up on toilet paper and stuff yeah. so it was like and I was listening to podcasts about Y2K and whether or not it was it was you know a red herring or it was a legit thing for people to be prepping to back then as I was building mm-hmm. my own prepper prepper thing and my, my <laughs> friend's my friends who are like very kind of like normal chill dudes were going, Oh, I'm getting my preps, you know, like, so it was sort of, it was yeah. sort of like a joke now. Oh, well, you know, and, and the joke was we're all preppers now, which I think is actually, you wrote an article with that title, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like, that's one of the titles I sort of, uh, working titles I, I set it on for my book around that time as well, which is yeah. like, so that's, you know, great minds think alike, Margaret. Um, yeah, but, no, you know, I, like, I won't be hurt if you use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other, the other title, which is interesting to me and that I was more, um, stuck on for a while is, um, rich prepper, poor prepper. Um, to sort oh, of like, like rich that. dad, poor dad. Yeah. Like that terrible self-help book. Right. Um, yeah, that I, book, think, I, and, I read like a chapter of it once to understand what people were talking about. It's so bad. It is so, it's so bad. bad, right? And the, I mean, the yeah. beautiful thing is, of course, is that that guy um, went bankrupt and possibly has fraud charges against him and stuff. So Hell yeah, fuck it's him. Pure, pure grift, right? Fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, but and, and I'll try to not make this too much of a, a, a tangent. But what I like about rich prepper, poor prepper, as a as a um, as a title, as a kind of frame, I guess, is it it. Mm-hmm. It, it really starkly shows the difference between Peter Thiel buying property wherever he wants in the world, and that's his prepping, versus the the single the mom woman who needs a tent. Who needs a tent, right? And so I think yeah. the, the scale of of um, social inequality. And who do we make fun of? We make fun of the the woman with a tarp tent, um, not right. Peter Thiel, because we, you know, I think as, Australia is really bad, and, and I'm sure the states is much better at laughing at poor people. Right? We call it punching down. Um, as a, yeah, as a term same, in yeah. Australia. Right. So, yeah. so yeah. And so I feel, and actually I'll, I'll, I'll tell this anecdote just cause I feel like, I don't know if the whole toilet paper wars, mm-hmm. there was some, some, some really um, lurid footage of, of people punching each other out in the aisles for toilet paper in Australia. That went very <laughs> viral. And, and then, so the, the first reading of that is like, Oh, poor bogans, aren't they stupid? You know? And it's, it's yeah. the punching down thing. And then I've, they're literally, of course, academics have written articles on, you know, what's going on here? Is it a kind of like sort of uh, trying to preserve hygiene, blah, blah, blah. But I actually, my reading, I think, is that what's going on is something that's hiding in plain sight, which is that if you're, if you're freaking out and you've left it quite late to, to prep and you don't have much money or much space, toilet paper is the cheapest, lightest, bulkiest thing to buy that you can yeah. you know drop drop 50 or 80 dollars fill a shopping trolley then fill your car then then fill a cupboard and then you're good right if you were to buy yeah. freeze-dried meals from the camping store that'd be like a thousand dollars um yeah two thousand dollars so that's my that's my my big take on the toilet paper was um but i guess all of this to say that the prepping thing as i was starting to become interesting in interested in it it just 
it suddenly it was everywhere, right? Suddenly everyone yeah. was stuck at home, but bugged in, you know, like we were all yeah. sort of forced to bug in. In New, in New Zealand where I was living, the, the New Zealand government lockdowns were pretty intense. So we had se- seven weeks, I think it was, where we couldn't go with, you know, outside of our five, oh, you know, you shouldn't really leave the house. Um, you couldn't get um, you couldn't get takeaways. You couldn't get anything delivered by the yeah. post. So it really was a type of life that was drastically different from frictionless on-demand capitalism. You know, driving around, flying around, life. Yeah. Um, and it was you know it was it was really um, it's I don't know it's we weird all managed COVID zero for a while, right? That's right. It was COVID zero for quite a long time, and. Um, and I, the thing that's kind of disturbing about it is that, you know, and there was a lot of compliance, like the the, the misinformation came later. And and to be honest, I sort of, I'd, I'd moved to Australia and I missed some of that. But mm-hmm. in so I was living in a town called Palmerston North, which is a, a couple of hours north of Wellington in the North Island. 70,000 people live there. And, and someone said after the fact that like in in Palmerston North, and, and it would serve a region of, say, another 70,000. So, so 150,000 people would use the medical facilities. They had mm-hmm. five ICU beds there, right? So oh, fuck. If, there yeah. had, if there'd been an outbreak, we could have accommodated five people, and everyone yeah. after that is potentially dying in the corridors kind of thing. So, yeah. And I feel like well, that's the, the fragility of the health system is something that wasn't – you know, it's it's a it's a it's a shameful story, right? It's a shameful story that the left wing government doesn't want to cop to because they look bad, and the right wing government just doesn't give a fuck about, it, so it doesn't talk about. It. But that's one of the deep reasons behind it. It's not it's not a sort of like authoritarian madness or overreach as much as a reflection of how how um how fragile things were. Yeah. No, I okay. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to I want to ask you about this, some of this stuff. One is yeah. so the the rich are right that New Zealand. I'm not I'm not telling the audience to go move to New Zealand, but like because <laughs> most of the time when people talk about like oh I'm going to go get an island, that seems like a bad plan. Um, but mm-hmm. it seems like New Zealand is now in a really good position to survive the apocalypse because there's all of these bunkers full of nice stuff that someone <laughs> can go, just go get. Mm-hmm. Um, and all you need is an That's anti-aircraft right. missile and, uh, and, and then you're good. Right. That's, um, that's right. Yeah. You just block up the, the ventilation and wait a couple of weeks and then yeah, totally. <laughs> and just go in and get the stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. cause there's yeah. that, um, did you read this article that came out a couple of years ago about, uh, the ultra rich were having a conference and that one of the things that they were discussing is how are we going to pay our security guards in like the, you know, apocalypse mm-hmm. or whatever. And mm-hmm. the thing is, there's so many like complicated things in this, but one of the things that you're talking about with the rich prepper, poor prepper thing, and I really like this framework, is that the the rich take this seriously. They tell us mm-hmm. not to take it seriously, right? Because mm-hmm. they need the bus driver. Well, they don't need bus drivers. They need mm-hmm. the takeout food and they need the mm-hmm. waiters and they need all this other shit. But they like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like like Davos had all the, you know, there's the the press release that came out where I was like, at Davos, all the world leaders are hanging out in masks with like air filters running all the time and windows open and shit, right? And mm-hmm, that's because mm-hmm. they don't want to die and they actually know mm. what's happening. And mm. I don't want to die and I think I know what's happening. And so I use mm. air filters and I wear masks and, and this kind of shit. And preparedness is the same way. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. someone who has billions of dollars is going to have a nice bunker. If I had billions of dollars, I would have a nice bunker. I too I would, would have a nice bunker if I had billions of dollars. Uh, yeah. 
I, I, I spend most of my time in this show talking shit on the bunker mentality, and it's not a good mentality because <laughs> someone can just plug up the top, right? But there's some yes. – that's not where I'm going to wait out the future, right? But it's mm -hmm. where I would go and, like, wait for the nuclear fallout to pass before I come back out and join the community or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But – I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, I really like this uh, this rich pepper, poor pepper thing. And I, I kind of want to mm -hmm. ask, like, so your current job, right? Your current research mm -hmm. project is about preparedness and about what preppers are doing. Have mm -hmm. you seen a bunch of change since then? Like, um, like how have things changed? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. That that's good. I, I do on the on the bunker mentality though, because I, yeah, I mm -hmm. think it's fascinating, right? And I, one of the things that I um, I think is really uh, interesting and, and uh, slippery, I guess, in how we think about this stuff is like if you're if you're a super rich Peter Thiel, Sam Altman type chap, and they're mainly men, you can literally buy bunkers without having a bunker mentality, right? Because you're just like, oh, I'll just invest some of my obscene profits over here. I've got a bunker, but they're not obsessing over it necessarily. It's oh, just yeah, you're right, yeah, because they've just got so much fucking money, and then you invest a bit in cryogenics and a bit in space and a bit in whatever other crap but but it's not sort of taking over your life or your identity right and so i think yeah as your as your disposable income comes down the percentage that you're investing in your preps goes up right which is why mm -hmm. if you're say on a you know blue collar wage or what have you and you want a bunker you would have to dedicate your life to it and you become a bit obsessive and crazy right so right. i think it's another one of the levels where the the way that privilege operates is is really important right and and even down to uh, the masks and, and backup food thing right if you if you're on if you're on the dole as we call it over here on welfare say mm -hmm. the idea of if you're saving three weeks worth of food that's maybe food you're not eating in the present so it it affects your quality of life in the here and here and now um yeah. whereas if you're if you're middle class um like I am, you can just have that extra food and not break a sweat with it, right? And I think yeah. in terms of bunker mentality and prepping mentality in general, one of the really important questions to wrestle with is how, is how much does preparing for the future impact on the quality of life in the present, right? Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around. Um, in terms of what have I seen changed, I think that's a really interesting question. And I feel like in a way, my benchmark, if I'd, if I'd started back in, say, 2017 or 2018, I think I would have been in a better place to see the change. I feel like I started just as we sort of moved, like, right. rocketed into COVID world. And so I was there for the, the mainstreaming of prepping and the kind of proliferation of different types of prepping is, is the two things I've, I've seen. And, you know, obviously there are, there are all the memes you'll be familiar with, which are like, you know, no one's making fun of preppers now. You know, we were right. And so, like, on the one level, I think there's been a legitimation of, of all of that stuff that, you know, yes, the world is a more dangerous place or, yes, systems can fall apart more easily. And I, I think on a lot of levels, well, that, that has the potential to be good, right? That has the potential for us to think harder about the, the follies of capitalism and, and um so forth as well as not as well as going into a conservative space but but then i think there's this other sort of flip side to it and and you know the other memes i was loving you know is, is be the picture of the guy with the ar-15 and the um the body armor and the wraparound sunglasses and mm -hmm. he's like saying i could stay in my bunker for six months and then it's like covid comes and he's like 
I don't want to be in my bunker. Let me out on the streets, you know? So there was the, yeah, yeah. the, the irony, of course, that, that all of these people yeah. who ostensibly are ready to hide, hide away from risk actually then don't want to do that. But, but unpacking that another sort of layer deeper, I guess, I feel like a lot of the, the especially at the sort of the slightly more right-wing misanthropic end of things, a lot of the rhetoric is like, you can't trust your neighbours, you know, community falls, community's only as strong as three days worth of food or what, or all of that kind of stuff. Um, I feel like in a way COVID uh, disproved that, right? Because society didn't necessarily fall apart. Turns out having a functioning state and welfare state is quite a good thing. You know, um, countries around the world with more of that stuff than America did a lot better. New Zealand and Australia did yeah. really well. The Nordic countries did really well. Strangely enough, strong social democratic countries did well. Yeah. So in theory that that has has taught us that maybe humans aren't as bad or, or you know, we're not all just zombies, right? The, all of that kind of zombie movie rhetoric should have been a little bit discredited. And also the the fact that um, the state is a, is a useless thing, I think has been a bit discredited, right? Because we've seen that actually it's quite good to have, you know, a good, a good medical system or it's quite good to have good communication systems and so forth. I mean, it's funny, it's like in my mind, I'm like, yes, it's good to have structures of organization. But in, in my <laughs> head, I'm like, they don't have to necessarily be the state, but that's my own biases coming in, you know? Totally, totally. But, I, but this thing that you're talking about, um, like the the guy with the AR being like, wait, I want to leave my bunker, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's one of the things that's so interesting to me about it. When I when I peek my head out of my like little bubble of um, of leftist preparedness and, and anarchist mm. preparedness and, and whatever, you know, people who aren't right wing, essentially, whenever I peek my head out and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go pick up this book on preparedness or I'm going to check out the following forum or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm always blown away by people who are convinced that the in, the the unit of survival is the mm. like the home, the homestead, you know, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. if like as if you're making your own canning jars, as if you mm-hmm. are as if anyone is homesteading to like literally be self-sufficient. Everyone is mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. in a larger web. Um, but I think one of the things that happens is that they create a community, right? It is a community mm-hmm. of people who get together and talk about all this stuff. But it's weird mm-hmm. because it's a community mm-hmm. that's built on the premise that as soon as shit happens, I'm going to turn around and fucking shoot you. You know, <laughs> if you come too yes. close to my house. And I'm like, that's got to hurt your soul. It's got to be bad for yeah. your soul to be like, yeah. oh, well, we're friends now. But as soon as the <laughs> Apocarev, no, wait, that's what we call it. As soon as the <laughs> SHTF happens, then yeah. it's all over. And I'm just like, mm. yeah, of course you want to come out of your bunker. Like people like hanging out with people. Like I'm a fucking yeah. hardcore introvert. I live, mm. I picked to live kind of where no one's around. I still miss people. I still like hanging out mm. with people sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, totally. So, like, I think, I mean, there's there's so much in there, isn't there? I mean, I think, yeah. The first thing to say is that all of that, because um, I have I have lurked and stalked in those those right wing forums yeah. and listened to like the Canadian Prepper podcast and that kind of thing. And, and oh, obviously- I, I, the, the is that the same guy who does the YouTube called yeah, Canadian yeah, yeah. Prepper? Yeah. He like I. <laughs> He like actually is probably kind of center, but he clearly <laughs> oh God, is okay. like, I think, I think he's like, yeah. but he's in the center right space. Yes. That's yes. my read. I don't know. Yeah. 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 No, I he's, think he's I think interested. 
Yeah. He's an interesting guy. But that, yeah, so there's this, one of the things that's going on is there's this very supportive social movement of very antisocial people. <laughs> um, and yeah. there's, probably, there's probably a lot of those if, if you actually dig into it, right? And the internet, of course, famously, that's what the internet um, facilitates is that people who are sort of antisocial can be social with each other. But but what I what I think about more and more, and this is like I've I've literally, and this is I've I've travelled a fair a bit, mainly in in um, Southeast Asia and Asia, China, mm-hmm. India, and stuff like that. I've never set foot in the states. Okay. I've 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 been to Canada. Um, I've never been to the states, and now I'm quite scared of the place. Like, I, I, obviously, I'd like to come visit, <laughs> but it's it's not top of my list, and I'm scared. You know, like I'm scared I'm just going to get shot randomly, or you know. Um, but when I when I think about the um the prepping thing, I, I sort of think that you know sometimes the rhetoric is like, if only we all have our have, have enough food for our families, and then locks on our doors, mm-hmm. and lots of ammunition. And everyone's like us, it's going to be fine. And it's like, no, you're not. Like, yeah. And who's going to be the biggest threat? It's going to be the other preppers who are doing exactly what you're doing because you're going to be yeah. trained with your guns. You're going to have heaps of bullets. You're going to have, you know, been like sloughing off all your empathy so that you can like, yeah. you know, basically have this death squad experience. And it sort of feels like, yeah, the, the move, you know, the sort of moving towards a kind of civil war or more like a first person shooter type nihilistic yeah. Fortnite video game thing. It, you know, in my head, that's what the States is becoming. But that's only when I'm looking at through the prepper lens. And I'm like, man, I really need to visit before. Well, I can, I mean, you know, because New York's great. And I'm sure LA or the wonderful places. <laughs> I'm like, I live in West Virginia. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, like, okay, what's funny, you're not entirely wrong, right? The United States <laughs> is in trouble, right? We mm. are, um, we are incredibly culturally polarized. Both sides are armed. Mm. I I am like, you know, I don't have like a, it is not important to me as food, but I've got mm. um, an AR-15 and, and some ammunition, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I I learned about it because not, I've said this story a million times probably in this podcast, mm. but I like, I got my concealed carry permit and like took classes mm. about how to shoot because Nazis mm. told me where I lived and told me and sent me pictures of my family, right? Yeah. And you're yeah, like, sure. okay, yeah. like, so, so it's like a threat modeling problem, right? Mm-hmm. One of my threats is Nazis. And the thing that I have mm-hmm. learned from history, because I, my other podcasts, I research history all day, yeah, 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 is that small arms make a difference at stopping fascism. They also make mm-hmm. a, a difference in enabling fascism, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, like small arms actually mm-hmm. have a, a wildly disproportionate impact for what they are which is basically just a hunting rifle that shoots a little faster. Mm. You know, it's, it, but no, it's so interesting to me because then I'm like, Oh, you come to the States. I'll I'll teach you how to shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would love that. I would, and I would do my darndest to get there. And I would love if, if anyone's going to teach me to shoot, I want it to be you, Margaret. Thanks. (laughs) Um, But like, but no, it, it is a, um, I mean, one of the reasons I want to ask about prepper culture, you know, where mm. you're at is because I mm. assume it's different. Like, because America yeah, yeah. is, I mean, America is not a right-wing country. America is a polarized country. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't have as strong of a history of a left as compared to most other European-descended countries, right? Mm-hmm. You know, our our left is actually center or center right by most standards the democrat party right it's it's not mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. left-wing party to any appreciable degree mm-hmm. yeah. there are like progressives within it but mm-hmm. 
Why am I talking about that? Well, I guess I'm kind of curious about mm. how prepare, preparedness differs because you you go and look at these preparedness cultures, like because in the U.S. Mm. Okay, wait, one more part to this rant. I'm thinking sure, about what sure. you're talking about, about like. So I actually think it's really important to distinct, or it's useful, not really important, but it's useful for me to distinguish between mm. the center right and the far right. Overall, I would say that like mm-hmm. this, most of the center right people I meet are people where I like disagree about some ways of dealing with certain things, as compared to the far right, who will mm-hmm. be like the bigots or the like the people who are actively looking like there's a difference between the center right preparedness people who mm-hmm. I think that they have a foolish idea. The homestead mm-hmm. idea is foolish. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Nazis, right? <laughs> yes. You know, and those are the enemy. Yeah. And so when I, when I pick mm-hmm. on the like homestead center, right preparedness people, oh man, I'm hoping to kind of like, help them come on over to like realizing that community is actually the thing that like gets people through problems. Yeah. But I, but I hold on to the far right as a threat model. That is the like <laughs> thing that I have to prepare for is the people who are armed yes. and want to murder me, you know, um, who largely like, like I live in a center right area and like everyone mm-hmm. seems to be more or less accepting of me, you know, and mm-hmm. we'll see how that plays out. Right. But like, yeah, yeah. um, I don't know. And so like my kind of question around this is you're actually looking at preparedness, obviously not as a total outsider, you have a garage full of food Mm -hmm. and, but from a sort of journalist point of view, uh, you know, uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. an interested analytical point of view, how, what is the overall politics you're running into or how, how polarized Mm -hmm. is it? Do you see any Mm -hmm. progress in a positive direction? Like what's Mm -hmm. your, what are the things that you're picking up on in preparedness culture? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I guess I, when I started this, this research in earnest, I was stuck in a, a small city in New Zealand um, during the lockdown. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, a lot of the media articles that were coming through my Google alerts were from the States, but there was also, you know, random articles were popping up from like preppers in Malaysia preppers in Russia, mm-hmm. preppers in Costa Rica. And so it was it was exciting to sort of see that there was a sort of, there were regional variations of this this globalizing phenomenon. But then I was doing my interviews mainly in New Zealand, right, Aotearoa. And mm-hmm. to tell the truth, I was like most interested in trying to find preppers who were doing it different to the American style. And I knew that that would yeah. be the case, mainly just because there's not gun culture in the same way, right? Like you yeah. can get a gun, in New Zealand, but you can't just buy it over the counter. Um, you have to go through like really lengthy background checks. And like my, my friend actually is getting into hunting and he's, look, he's becoming mm-hmm. a prepper, I'll be honest. Um, but when he was trying to get his <laughs> his rifle to go, um, you know, deer hunting or whatever, they literally sent a police round to his house to interview his partner to see if she yeah. was okay and if they need to do a domestic violence intervention, right? Like, which yeah. I, my understanding is that's not how it works in the States. Um but so that's correct. <laughs> so the the, prep, the the preppers and you know the the first prepper I, I spoke to in in New Zealand it was yeah I was with my mate Tama um, we were about to go on an outdoor adventure and his, his mate Andy was over and and Andy was like oh, I haven't seen you in a while what are you up to and I was like oh, I'm doing a book about preppers uh, do you know any preppers mm-hmm. and he was like well my brother's a prepper um, he was just uh-huh. on Radio New Zealand um, the other day and. I was like, well, that's amazing. Can I please talk to him? And so that was how I how I met this this chap, Richard Hovey. And it was just lovely. And so Richard's like, 
lives in suburban middle class Wellington, you know, like a mm-hmm. you know small medium city. He's uh, his background's kind of industrial design, very lefty, greeny. You know, was a member mm-hmm. of the Greens Party until he decided they weren't getting action on climate change fast enough, and he became jaded. Um, a single dad as well, and he's just become a, a full-on prepper with a focus on sort of bugging into the house, um, storing food, you know, grinding his own yeah. flour to make bread, all of that kind of good stuff. Um, but he, and he's got very little interest in guns, but he's very interested in self-defense. So martial arts is a thing for him. Yeah. And then kn- knives, throwing stars, weapons, and training his children how to fight with weapons. And uh-huh. that was something where, you know, when I was talking to him, like on one level, I was like, well, dude, that's a bit much. And he was, I think he was very aware of that. He was very cognizant. And he was like, <laughs> oh, I worry if I, if my children are becoming a bit too violent and they want to, you know, they, I watched them fighting over Lego, but Lego, um, but now they're doing it with, with wooden swords, <laughs> you know, that's um, funny. Uh-huh. It's, it's good, right? Like it's good stuff. Um, and then, you know, and so I think he's a little bit, um, a little bit torn about wanting to protect his kids and have them sort of ready for some sort of riots mm-hmm. or, you know, civil unrest. And then going, is it going to make their life worse in the here and now? And, but like, I had to sort of stop and pause and cause I don't, I don't have kids. My, uh, my, my wife and I are, are childless and I don't know martial arts, but I was like, well, God, if, if I had kids and I knew martial arts, I'd be training my children, you know, that this, you know, right. I, so I don't actually, I don't even think that the craziest thing, that, that this guy was doing is that crazy at all like I think if I was in that position I would probably end up making the same decisions and coming to the same conclusions right yeah but when it came to the gun thing there's just not that much ammunition there's not that many bullets in New Zealand Margaret yeah. so the 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 idea seems to be and I talked to a number of, of Kiwi preppers who, who have said similar things it's like there's just not enough bullets like so you'd have to like <laughs> spend a lot of money and and um, to have enough that otherwise your gun just becomes a, a, a crappy club after a couple of days, right? Because you, you had yeah, 100 yeah. bullets and you've shot them all. It's like you'd be better yeah. off with a bow and arrow. You'd be better off with a sword. Like if you're thinking yeah. about it in a kind of self-defense paramilitary type situation, you know, you'd yeah. be better off with a long stick or or what have you. So that's sort of one of the, the ways that it's, it's shaken out over there. But I think... Okay. I think in a way the lack of guns is, is one thing, but I think the lack of that kind of super, super far right anti-state, you know, the government is our enemy, the government's coming for us. Like because that isn't mm-hmm. present at all to the same extent, it's not, it's not entirely absent, but it's not in any way such a strong It's, fr- it's fringe as compared to. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's very fringe. Right. And so, so what you have instead or, and I, and I did seek out while I was there the people who were doing the kind of more lefty community eco prepping just because to be honest I just was like these are my people I love these people they're really oh, yeah, nice no, you know yeah it's also a better idea yeah and it's a better idea right and I was like this is a much more interesting story and it's not yeah it's not it's not um just a, a sort of a joke story and it also it connects I guess with my politics and what I want to be doing with the book which is like using prepping mm-hmm. as a way to make people take climate change seriously, right? Because it's like yeah. if you're talking to – there's this fabulous woman, um, Lucy Atkin-Ree, who's like, you know, was living in a, in a yurt, like a Mongolian tent, 
you know, in the country. She's like one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion Aotearoa, um, British originally. Um, mm-hmm. And she was just like, we're going to grow as much food as possible. Um, and we're going to, but we've got no walls and no gates. We're just going to try and feed as many people as possible. And I was like, yeah, well, this is utopian. And, and also like having a really good time in the here and now, right? Like, yeah, totally. Eating beautiful, healthy food, connecting with the neighbors, like having that really beautiful permaculture experience. And I was like, there's something in that which is really win-win and it doesn't matter if the world doesn't end. It doesn't matter if things, if, if, yeah. if, if, if global capitalism keeps teetering along the path for decades, it's still win-win because you're living a beautiful life. You're not harming anyone and, and you're enjoying the present moment. So, so those kind of stories I found quite, quite utopian and beautiful. But it was weird, like in New Zealand, I sort of feel like um, the like prepping culture isn't and, and paramilitary culture or all those other American things are not are not there. <laughs> but I still found that little anecdotes of prepping would pop up like mushrooms everywhere, right? Like I'd be I'd be drinking with some old friends in Wellington, mm-hmm. and and I remember my, one of my mates was like, "Oh, I went on a Tinder date uh, a couple of years ago," uh, and this this girl was like, "Oh." my dad's a prepper. He's got an underground bunker under his orchard, you know, and, you know, literally on the first Tinder date, which I don't, I don't think there was another one, you know? And so, and all like I was, I was, at, I was catching up with a, with a friend who was, who was getting married. It was like his bachelor party. Um, and there was like an old friend who I, or someone I went to high school with, I hadn't seen in like 25 years or something. I'm old. So 25 years. And, and this person was like a lawyer, you know, living in a small town and he's we're having a really great chat. Dr- we're drinking and walking in the bush, which is like such a New Zealand thing to be doing, drinking beer on a bushwalk. Mm-hmm. And then he was saying, I'm a lawyer, but you know, me and the partners were really worried about AI, you know, it's going to come in and then completely disrupt law. And this was back in like 2021. So it was, you know, he yeah. was just ahead of the AI panic that we're all in now. Um, yeah. And I was like, oh, you're, t- you're freaked out about AI. This is sounding a bit preppery. And like, sure enough, a couple of hours, a couple of beers later, he was uh-huh. like, yeah, me and my wife, you know, we're preppers. Um, we've got food stash. We've got the guns. You know, we've got all this stuff. Yeah. And and at the wedding, the, my friend Steve's wedding was a week or two later, and you know, it was a beautiful wedding in a garden and they had the PA system and stuff. And afterwards I was helping move some of the speakers back into the car of this, this guy and his wife. And the wife was like, oh yeah, before we get the speakers in, we've got to move our bug out bags. And they were, you know, just pulling the bug out bags out of their, <laughs> their soccer bar station wagon. Yeah. And so it was like, but it was really, you know, in a way it was quite beautiful. I was like, there's just sort of prepper culture kind of um, little pockets of it here and there, you know, and this, this other, you know, old, old friend, who um, had been living by the coast and then they got really freaked out about sea level rise. And so they'd moved to this small inland town that was, you know, hundred meters above sea level or whatever. And they were like, mm-hmm. not going to get smashed by a tsunami. And it was like, well, you are living in Danny though. And like <laughs> Danny a pretty like small and crummy town. Like, you know, I was like, yeah. you should have stayed where you, you had a really nice beach situation going. <laughs> and so in a way, that's one of those things where it's like, what are you sacrificing in the present versus what do you, you know, for future, future gains and so right. forth. Um, but then like, I think that, that that's, I mean, I, I only advocate that people prepare in ways, mostly I only advocate ways mm. that enrich our lives, right? Like after we get off this call, yes. I'm going to go make bread, right? And like nice, my life nice. is better now that I make bread. I'm not particularly good at this, but I'm like, well, <laughs> whatever, I want to make bread. Mm. And it's like, 
you know, and so it's like a skill that I wanted to learn and now I get to do it. And now I get to like put pesto on it from my garden. This is all very new to me. I've never been a very good nice. thumb person. And yeah. and yeah, and it it enriches our lives. It sometimes changes our lives, right? Yeah, because like there is the mm. like, okay, if you have this beautiful beachside property, do you mm. want to hang out even though it might shorten your life dramatically? And that is actually mm-hmm. a hard question that I think a lot of people are asking right now because um, mm-hmm. huge chunks of the world are uh, less and less livable. And then you also get mm-hmm. into the preparedness differences right between like um, who can afford to leave. Like to take mm-hmm. the United mm-hmm. States as an example, it's like mm. uh, marginalized people in Florida are like fucked right now. I, 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 yeah, yeah. I kind of assume that everyone around the world knows US news and that we don't know any around the world news. That's usually the way it mm-hmm. usually works. But yeah, um, yeah. Florida's run by a right-wing maniac and uh, yeah. you know, and it's like basically illegal to be trans and, and by a lot of different mm-hmm. contexts or you can't get access to the medical needs that you need and, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are leaving, especially parents of trans children. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of people can't leave, right? You know, mm-hmm. and so like being able to leave, you know, there's entire countries that are just fucked by climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most of the people in those countries can't leave. And so that does get into the like, they actually need preparedness more than yeah, like yeah. the random person in New Zealand or the random person in the United States in a safer part of the United States or whatever, you know? Yes, yes, totally. Yeah, if you're in Bangladesh, say, like one of those really yeah. coastal places. But I feel like, and this is something that, and and I'm I'm probably only going to get to scratch the surface with this on this, this book I'm working on. I mm-hmm. would love, I mean, in a dream world, I would love to go and spend, you know, chunks of time in places like Bangladesh to get my head around what's going on there and how it relates to prep and culture, right? That's one of my big questions is prep and culture is primarily an Anglo sphere thing, right? It's American and then it's a bit British, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It's popping up in Germany and France in quite a big way. And like it is sort of globalizing, but then like I was in, so I was in Indonesia last year. I was lucky enough to be at a writer's festival in Bali, which is tropical paradise in this town called Ubud, which is a like a hippie yoga, it's sort of been colonized by yoga people. Um, okay, but it's but but so Bali is a Hindi a Hindi kingdom within a, a Muslim Indonesia's Muslim, but Bali is Hindi. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. beautiful island. It's sort of um, formed by a volcanic cone, so it's some of the most fertile soil on earth. It has three rice harvests a year, which I think is unusual. Usually, it's only wow. two. So before yeah. tourism came. They had like the best yields of anywhere on the planet. Thousand year old agric, uh, like sort of, um, what do you call it? Like paddy field, um, water, agricultural, oh, what do you call that stuff? Cool farming tech where the water runs okay. down and, and ir- irrigation, sorry, irrigation is the word mm-hmm. I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like it, it was, it's a really beautiful place that's been like very, very damaged by tourism. And so now Bali has to import rice from either from Java or from China, which is just fucking ridiculous, but that's yeah. the world we live in. But I was over there kind of, and because I'm so deep in this prepping thing, I was going, man, maybe Bali would be a good place to live. And it's weird because Australia is, you know, the politics, one of the sort of racist right-wing things is like scared of Indonesia invading Australia, right? Stop the okay. refugees, stop the boats. Um, there are, yeah, there yeah. are a lot of people in Java for sure. But I was sort of like going, man, maybe moving to Bali from Australia is not such a stupid idea because Australia is a giant desert. 
you know, like very vulnerable to, right. to drought and stuff. And right. like but also like thing. catches on fire a lot, right? Catches on fire terribly. Like the, the fires in, in 2019, 2020 were just appalling. I, I was, I just left when they happened, but I was in New Zealand and the sky mm. was turning yellow in New Zealand, you know, like across the Tasman yeah. Sea, thousands of kilometers away. And it was, yeah. And those fires killed hundreds with the smoke. Um, but so living in Bali or people living in Bali, one of the things that really struck me is that there's all that kind of community integration and coherence, right? And you don't have to say, you don't have to tell people, guys, it's not just about being an individual. It's about being part of a society. People are like, no, no, right. we get it. We're part of a society. So it's like people are just part of that more integrated, more collectivist, more communal way right. of life. And, it, and they're also used to getting by with, with a lot less. So on one level, I was like, God, maybe they're actually going to be far more resilient than rich, spoiled people in, in the first world who, who will just potentially freak out if, if their standards of living aren't getting met. And I, and I was talking yeah. to some of the ta- taxi drivers who, who worked there who, of course, when COVID lockdown went through, they lost all their employment. So they went from you know earning a subsistent wage to having no money whatsoever coming in because there are no Australians um, catching taxis around so they so the income dropped to zero and and this i was talking to this guy who and i was like what did you do and he's like well i went back to the rice paddies and i i got a you know i got a little patch of rice paddy and i i worked and i had a duck and a chicken and i had their eggs and then he was like Mm -hmm. and then i'd go into the jungle and i'd forage for papaya and for for jungle salad and i'd feed my feed my family jungle salad and like on one level it was you know like a, a really sort of tragic story of hardship but another story it was like he had rice and chickens and ducks and jungle salad right. and papaya you know like it was all there like like if if there was a you know if, if employment you know if the economy crashed in australia there's no there's no um jungle salad to be had you know if, same in new zealand yeah. and so so th- there was this part of me which is sort of going like maybe maybe a lot of this sort of like um anglo cultures have 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 got some things wrong in, just in terms of like, I think we're just so sort of fixated on like our country is the only country. This is the only way to be. Whereas I actually wonder if the resilience of, of the global South is actually going to be far greater. And I mean, I'm sure there is going to be insane migration flows and it's going to be very messy and it will trigger all, all manner of wars and civil wars and draconian crackdowns. I, I do think yeah. that will happen, but I also think that there will be, the ability of, of society and culture to continue is actually probably going to be far greater than, than we realize sort of from these white countries looking into it. Well, I'm, I'm wondering about that a lot anyway. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that, um, I think there's a lot of stuff in um, radical and progressive and anarchistic culture that comes when it comes from like a Eurocentric point of view that is basically just trying to find what has been stripped away by what comes before from uh, a Eurocentric culture, right? Like um, <laughs> more and more, again, I read history books all, all day. And like the more I read about the enclosure of the commons, I'm just like, oh, this is like the mortal wound that we're mm-hmm. basically just all trying to recover from is that mm-hmm. people used to, even when they were broke, have access to, well, I can go hunt, I can go graze, I can go mm-hmm. chop wood, I can use the commons, you know? Mm-hmm. And obviously capitalism comes out of this and all this shit. And so it's just like, mm-hmm. this is when we became like super atomized. This is when we became super like 
individualist and then also like homesteadist, you know, like like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not just about the individual, but the individual family, you know, the nuclear family or whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So no, that makes sense to me. But then it is still awful because mm-hmm. like the actual straight up crises are mm. primarily affecting the um the extracted from world rather than the world that yes. did the extraction. That's a depressing we're coming up near the end of our <laughs> time and that's a terrible note to end on. There's gotta be something else. Uh <laughs> well I mean that is true, but it's like the other thing about the extracted upon world or, or chunks of it, they still have some really beautiful spiritual systems in place that enable them to mm-hmm. live happy and beautiful lives, even with with material poverty and with with um with suffering, right? And so that I feel like that's a circle I can't square um, in terms of like how do I make sense of that as a as a white heathen secular atheist person who grew up and has does yoga every now and then and like <laughs> likes the idea of Buddhism but has not committed to anything that yeah. and, you know I feel like I live in spiritual pain a lot of the time and that my friends yeah. live in spiritual pain and my culture is a culture of spiritual pain and so these these places yeah. that are suffering terribly also are enlightened in a lot of ways that doesn't it doesn't take away the terrible things that have been done to them and that they they do to themselves but that does mean that people um live with equanimity and and grace as well yeah no i mean i I think that um you know whiteness is the eradication of culture right like um and at this like incredible you know privilege it it is sold for an incredible amount of privilege right um but i think Mm. that that is a thing that a lot of people are trying to find their ways around. And of course, like, obviously like a lot of, you know, I, I know more about the, you know, indigenous cultures here on, on Turtle Island, but like, mm. you know, what has been asked of a lot of people who are settlers is to um, actually look into where we're from and what was stolen from us as like within the colonization of Europe. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and not with this, like, and then it's like sketchy. Cause we're all like, you know, I'm not from a culture that uses runes, right? But let's say you're from a Germanic mm-hmm. culture, you're like, well, I don't want to go in and get into runes. The people who are into that shit are Nazis, you know? And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, like, you know, Irish Americans are insufferable. So um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, what are you going to choose, I, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think it's just a personal thing. And I think it's a thing that behooves people to do. And then just, but it's, it's hard to, mm. You also, we just like can't center ourselves in any of the conversations around it either. And it's, it's a, I don't know, it's complicated. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, maybe I should come back in a year when I've done more research um, around the rest of the world and I'll, I'll give you an update. I, I look forward to that. Is there any, um, any kind of like final thoughts you have or like questions you wish I'd asked or things you're looking forward to um, about or like things that give you hope about preparedness or? Mm. Um, favorite think... uh, caliber of ammunition i'm joking that's a <laughs> yeah, joke. yeah yeah guess most no look i what in a way what gives me hope about preparedness i was i was, I was thinking about this i feel like the 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 reason that people get into preparedness is because they come to they're worried the threat model has has freaked them out about some sort of threat um mm-hmm. and they've reached the conclusion, no matter what the threat is, the threats can be very different, right? From from 5G microchip, you know, conspiracy bullshit to 
the very legitimate threats of social inequality and climate crisis. But I feel like there's this interesting convergent point where you go, ah, the system might all fall apart or life as we know it might be a done deal and we, we're going to have to think about it. And then from there, I feel like that moment, as, as, as much as it's a crisis and as much as it's very painful and, and scary and sad and all the rest of it, I feel like in that moment, that inflection point, there is the potential for people to reevaluate the world quite dramatically. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think, I think there's the potential for political change and social progress to come from that moment. Right. And if it's as, yeah. Even if it's as small but maybe profound as get to know your neighbours better or, you know, think about um, food differently, I do think that there is a a radical um, chance for a sort of revitalisation of left politics and progressive politics comes out of that moment as much as it can go the other way to, like, you know, lock your doors and lock up your wife. Um, And I do think that that moment can be kind of, prized open a bit and that you know and that's also how we can maybe take the climate crisis a bit more seriously i don't think we can stop it i'm not even sure we can slow it down that much but even a little bit of slowing it down is nice and i think thinking about um reappraising things as a way of let going letting go of capitalism which is you know what what we all need to be doing as well no that that all makes sense and you know it ties really well back to australia because the most famous series of utopian uh post-collapse films come from mm-hmm. Australia, of course, the Mad Max films about the the beautiful societies that can grow up from the <laughs> That's <cracks>. right. <laughs> yeah, just good times, right? Just driving around yeah. kind of like with a yeah. metal mask on your face like as a human hood ornament. Yeah, exactly. Like you could have a guy on the front of your car. That is the kind of thing that is now available to us in the future. That's just right. A guy, just dream. Just a, just, yeah. Yeah. Just dream large, you could be right? the the gimp on the car if that's if that's <laughs> what you're into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything that you want to plug um, here at the end? Um, no. Look, I would just say I've, I've, if you want to know more about uh, preppers in New Zealand or four of them, I did I did mm-hmm. write an article for New Zealand Geographic called "The Preppers Next Door." So I'm pretty sure okay. if you just Google "The Preppers Next Door." New Zealand Geographic that should come up. So that'll give you a little taste of how prepping in Aotearoa um, differs from American-style prepping. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks so much, and I I look forward to talking to you in a year when you have new information for us. Thank, thanks so much, Margaret. Keep doing that excellent work that you do. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, you should tell people about it. It's the main way people find out about podcasts. People don't like Google. What's a good podcast? They like hear from their friends. Maybe people Google what's a good podcast, in which case you should type in what's a good podcast, um, live like the world is dying a bunch of times from a bunch of different computers. So that way the autocomplete of Google, as soon as someone says, actually, you know what, like what's good, you should just be like anytime like like what's a good and then just type in strangers in a tangled wilderness, which is the name of the publisher. If you want to support this podcast without doing weird Google hacks that don't make any sense and don't work, you can support us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. And we send out uh, zines to anyone who backs us at $10 anywhere in the world. And we put, and they're all different. They're not all necessarily on any given topic. Um, 
that makes it sound really vague. I swear we curate them well. And we use that money to pay to make a lot of stuff happen, including this podcast. It doesn't pay the hosts, but it does pay the transcriptionist and the audio editor who do the thankless work because I'm not going to thank them. You shouldn't thank them. That's the whole point. It's thankless. Um, but you, we should give them money by by going there. My dog just yelled at me. I don't know if that's going to come across, but my dog doesn't like me claiming that I shouldn't thank the audio editor and the transcriptionist. In particular, I would like to thank Marmon, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Jans, Oxalis, Janice and Odell, Paige, Ali, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and of course, Haas the dog. All right. Oh, I hope everyone's doing as well as you can. <laughs>